Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with horn player Eric Rowski, who has been principal horn of the Met Opera Orchestra since 2010, following 17 years with the New York Phil. In this month's conversation, you'll hear Eric describe some of the ways in which he managed to make the most of his limited practice time in preparing for both the LA Phil and that auditions that he won. How he will sometimes learn new repertoire at tempo instead of building it up slowly with a metronome. Why sometimes the solution to a technical problem is musical and how incredibly valuable subdividing can be, not just for rhythmic accuracy, but for technical accuracy and to facilitate more musically compelling performances as well. Making the most of one's practice time is challenging for any musician, but um, as I've gotten to know more brass players, my understanding is that that's even more so the case for brass players, given there being more clear physical limits to the amount of time you can spend with the instrument. Sure. Um, so on one hand, I'm curious to find out how you approach practicing and prioritizing what you do in the practice room in general, given how much music there is to prepare at the minute. Yeah, true but, enough. But even before we go there, I'm actually really curious about how you managed practice in the context of audition preparation, given I don't know how many people outside the, the brass or horn world know of this, but you not only won your current position as principal horn at the Met, but you won the LA Phil principal job the same week. Right. So assuming that those are two very different lists, mm-hmm. I'm curious as to how you managed to keep all those plates spinning, as it were, at the highest possible level. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, in direct answer to, to my situation, when I won both positions, in fairness, I should explain that the decision from LA came um, in the same week that I won the Met audition, the, the actual LA audition I took, the final one, <laughs> was months before. They just, one of those situations where they sat on a decision and all of a sudden, oh, he must be that good if somebody else wants him. <laughs> I, I don't know what their thinking was in all fairness, but I think for students preparing for audition, that's what you've been doing the entire time you've been in college. And you can be sort of more single-minded, you're getting mock auditions, you're getting lessons, rep classes, all that experience that you spend in school is, is designed t- towards that end of, of winning that job. 
And as a professional, the challenges are that you've got a day job. And for most people, life gets a little bit more complicated when you leave school. Um, you may not be eating in the cafeteria anymore. <laughs> the mundane tasks of being responsible for yourself. Maybe it, it, you've uh, got people in a family now that you're a situation, a significant other, children perhaps. So your time is really divided. And so to prepare while you have a job is a really hard thing. And as you mentioned, brass players, because we have a limit to endurance and you've got to think about if I spend four hours practicing for this audition this afternoon, am I going to have enough chops for tonight's performance? So I found myself in, in going home and doing a lot of my preparation after concerts. At the time that I was preparing for the LA and the Met auditions, I was living in a condo at the time and there was a clubhouse that by the time I got home from a Philharmonic concert, uh, it would, would have been 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Of course, nobody was in there, and so I remember it was just a large room, cathedral ceiling, and it was my own little Carnegie Hall retreat. And I would I would play to the wee hours of the night. I mean, not too many, uh, you know, you gotta sleep. But you know, I'd put in an hour to to two hours after concerts. And for me, you know, everybody's different. I'm a little bit more of a night owl. I, I like the peace and quiet that you find after hours like that. So that and the acoustics of the room I was playing in, my little sanctuary, knowing I wasn't bothering anybody too, it was far from any of the other residences. It was a place where creativity and allowed for, for a place to be focused. And then when I've been more successful, I think I have been a little more organized in my, in my practice and addressing the general question too. When you've got limited practice time, you get right to the heart of the matter. You know what you know. So why spend time doing that? You spend time on that which you don't know. And that can be these two beats in this one long excerpt where if you're honest with yourself and you realize that has too high a percentage of times where it doesn't go well, you spend your time on that and uh, taking things out of context more um, and eventually putting back into context. and. In your practice, I think, you know, one has to find that proper balance of taking things out of context, untangling those things technically or musically that need to be uh, untangled, and then putting it back into the whole uh, larger context. Uh, knowing how to analyze problems quickly, I think, is also key. Sometimes the solution to a technical problem is musical. Sometimes it's the opposite. And, and then sometimes the answer to a technical problem is merely technical, you know, so you have to understand uh, what the key is. But I always, in my teaching, as well as my own work, I always say, start from where you, just, you can succeed, because, uh, which means to simplify it, take it down to a place where it, in, in its most basic elements, what is the issue, and succeed at that level one, if you want to sort of use a video game analogy, which <laughs> that seems to work well. And then add the next layer of difficulty. So take a passage. If you've got a few beats of running 16th notes, you can t try the old tried and true method, old fashioned way of, you know, putting the metronome on 20 and then, you know, a year later you've got it worked up to 160, whatever. And that does work. But I, I find that I might take it close to performance temper right away and just practice the first two notes and then add the third note. And I can really focus at speed when I'm 
simplifying it like that of, oh, anybody can play the first two notes of a run. I might not be perfect the first few times out of the gate even, but perfect in every way, rhythmically, technically. And then when you see at full speed note one to two, and it doesn't seem fast anymore, then you add the third note, and then you add the fourth note. It may seem like that could take you 100 years to get there, but it actually comes more quickly. And then, of course, by the time you're working on the second and last note to the last note, of course, you've played all the other notes in that run a few hundred times. So I, I do find that, that that's really helpful because slow practice is great, and, and I do believe in that. But this seems to complement it well, the, the other way of working, because slow practice, um, you need to feel what it's like to move with precision slowly where you can succeed. But by the time you work it up to full performance speed, it can seem sort of like a blur because you haven't really seen it at performance speed logging the number of hours you would when you practice and learn it at full speed. So I always say like a race car driver, if, if you're used to moving 250 miles an hour, to that person it doesn't seem, it's just never, another day at work. But to you or I, that would, be <laughs> that would probably induce some uh, vertigo or something. So yeah, starting where you can succeed. Maybe, in fact, sometimes, you know, just to get specific for the musician, maybe the, the, the issue is that in a fast passage, you have a certain amount of it might be diatonic, and then you've got some awkward leap there. So let's say the fourth sixteenth going to the next group of sixteenths is a leap. I might play one, four, one, four, one, four, one, four, one, and just practice going through, you know, not playing the first and fourth note of each group. Add another one, mix it around like that. I mean, it's most people have probably heard those kinds of practice tips from their teachers, but that's it does come down to no one wants to sit there banging their head against the wall, failing it at a passage that doesn't do anything good for your confidence. So getting right to the heart of it is, is the essence. It saves time in the end. And you said something really intriguing that I want to follow up on, because I've heard this from a couple different folks in different places, but I've never heard anyone kind of expand on it to clarify it, because I think it makes sense when we hear it, but then when we start thinking about, well, wait a minute, how do I actually apply that? Sometimes we get a little stuck, and, and that was when you said, sometimes the solution to a technical problem is musical in nature, and and mm -hmm. I'd love for you to maybe share an example if one comes to mind, or, sure. or say a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, technically speaking, as a horn player and a, and a wind player, but I'm sure that every instrument has its own version of this. But sometimes when you're faced with a, a technical passage, you only see it as that. But great composers don't write necessarily technical passages just for the sake of showing off skill. They're writing because it, it, it has musical value. And so if you attach it what is the direction, what is the, f the shape of this phrase, these 16th notes or, you know, whatever the technical challenge is of, of a given passage, when you think what is the direction or for, for uh, a wind player, for at least a horn player, uh, speaking as one, it's easy when you're looking at it technically to bear down and so to blow at each note, where when you see it as its music value and think, well, what is the shape of the phrase, automatically you blow through a series of notes rather than bear down and freeze up and lock up a little bit. Suddenly that sense of flow 
these notes now connect in a way and, and you're sitting on uh, approaching it actually with better technique because on wind instruments uh, I think and especially on a horn because we hang by a very fragile thread in terms of hitting the right note or, or not we stand on firmer ground technically when we blow through things when you chop things up with your air to have to restart for a given note you all bets are off again you have nothing you know you've cut off any connection, you have to re-engage and you're dealing with a blank slate. So, you know, if you're blowing through things, you just are on better uh, ground. And that's where, when you face a technical passage and you don't see it for its musical value, your skill, uh, your technique may slip back into something that's really not desirable and more prone to accidents. So, you know, that's a short version of a passage that might improve just for thinking musically, the technical part will improve as a result. Speaking of accidents, the last time we spoke, you said something that remains one of the favorite things I've, I've ever heard anyone say, and, and that was something along the lines of how when you were starting to have more success in auditions, you said you would, I think this might have coincided with you getting more into meditation and mindfulness and so forth. and. And you said that you had given yourself permission to miss notes in an audition. And, yeah. and that you had even given yourself permission to miss every note if it came to that, mm-hmm. so long as you miss them in time. Right. And, right. and I think I have a sense of what you meant by that in terms of presence and, and mindfulness. But mm-hmm. I'd love for you to expand on that, too. And, and yeah. Explain. Yeah. Well, it was an important moment because, again, as a horn player, I mean, in any instrument, we all fear, I think, missing notes, uh, uh, smudging passages, whatever. But... No instrument is more associated with obvious missing than the horn. And giving yourself permission to miss everything, but miss it in time, was important for me in that, first of all, your rhythm, of course, is, is essential uh, at an audition, especially as an orchestral player. Instruments uh, that are more associated with solo playing, there might be more license to uh, use rubato and be more individualistic, soloistic about things. But as an orchestral player, uh, rhythm I've always heard, and it's true, I understand it, is one of the first things that eliminates people on an audition. You can play a note-perfect audition, but you're joining an ensemble of, of 100 people, and if they can't trust you to represent what's on the page accurately, uh, you're not going to get anywhere. And you analyze uh, a committee. is made up of people who not, don't necessarily play your instrument, and they don't necessarily, uh, therefore, understand what's hard and what's not, or they don't understand what standard you uh, you may be held to but anybody can judge as a musician whether somebody's you know basic rhythmic sense is is strong or not so it's an easy one for a committee to uh unify around a sense of whether somebody's solid or not so yes addressing my own sense of rhythm at that point saying i'm just going to focus on playing in time but also attaching to that that i don't care if i miss every note as long as I do it in time. I was going to put all my energy in on rhythm, but it's also a little bit of uh, removing the fear and the focus of missing. So I don't think about it. What I found out was I did miss less. Um, it's like saying, don't think of pink elephants right now. Of course, you're going to think about it, right? And you're going right to letting your fear resonate in a negative way if you attach so much about missing. So I just said I was going to allow myself to miss everything, but focus on something that would help me. Because thinking about not missing isn't really going to help you. That, that brings tension into your playing. You're probably more likely to miss if you're tense. 
And then it might, if you are successful not missing, it's probably led to some very careful playing. And then it's also taken up so much of your focus that other things important, more basic, like rhythm, is going to slip through the cracks. So, yeah, permission to miss everything was really helpful to me because then I, your mind was free to think about other things, like I said, and, and I actually found I was more accurate player once I sort of let go of that attachment. So it was good. In terms of rhythm, this might seem like an obvious question, but, but how did you work on rhythm? I mean, I assume there's a metronome involved at some point, but when you say rhythm, I also assume you're not talking about like metronomic precision per se, but something that's more musically resonant with whatever it is that you're playing. How, how do you work on that? I'm glad you asked that question because in all honesty, it was not my strong suit. I'm not even going to say today whether it is or not because <laughs> I don't want to be my own judge here. But I know that when I was a student, it wasn't high on my list of priorities. I was so focused on acquiring skills as a horn player, developing the sound that, that I related to as being beautiful. So when I would play something, you know, in my college career, with those things being my goal, I was always let down when somebody said, you really need to subdivide more. <laughs> because my reaction to that was, well, that completely negates everything that I just did. Didn't you hear how I've got this incredible high register and I've got this beautiful sound and, you know, strength or power or whatever that I thought you would find exciting? I mean, I never articulated that, but that's how I was feeling the hurt inside of like, of all the good stuff that I was focusing on was negated. And, and then I thought to myself, any idiot can count. That was just like a mathematical exercise that you could teach a, a chimp to do or something. But I was the idiot in the room who wasn't counting. I wasn't subdividing. So then the next frustration was I'd spend a lot of more time having the metronome on my stand and, and working with it. But when I turned it off, like at an audition or playing something for my teacher, the comment would come back still. You, you know, you need to subdivide more. And I thought, but I did all this work with the metronome. So what I realized then was that you can have two attitudes when you practice with a metronome. And the attitude I took was I put it on, I follow it, which is very passive. And you would just literally follow the metronome. But instead, at some point, and I don't know why this clicked to me, but I you know, had this epiphany one day of like, I'm following it, but I could take a role of leadership with the metronome. Where if you hear, you know, two clicks, in your mind, of course, if you subdivide, you can get one and two. And so then I thought, well, okay, now I can accurately predict where the next click is going to be for the next, you know, 100 hours if I can stay awake and focused. So and one and now and now and now and now and now. And so the metronome then just became like a way of making sure that my prediction of the next beat was coming accurately and that I wasn't deviating from that. And then I did something that, that I, I teach, I tell my students to do, but never outside a practice room, which is like if you have a long note, to do, it's a real sin in wind, wind playing, but, you know, instead of playing, a, let's say, a half note for a beat of going, Dum, I felt, for me, what I had realized was, at some point, the metronome that was sitting on the stand, I needed to do a, what I call the metronome transplant. How, do, how would I get that to live inside me, you know? And certainly that, that idea of listening to just a, a two or three clicks and getting a subdivision going and 
and working with metronome to predict each beat accurately. But I also felt like it was really a good thing to play that half note and actually pulse with your air of ha ah, instead of just ah. Because long notes is where most of us decide to take vacation mentally. <laughs> so I would, I did that myself. You know, I got the long notes. I would pulse my air uh, with the subdivision. And then it became a very physical thing. It, it sort of lives with inside you. Yeah, mentally you have to sort of have that subdivision awareness, but then you can make it physical in a way. It became more real. And then I, I didn't really need the metronome so much anymore. I mean, yes, you still use the metronome to this day, but it was finally where the subdivision lived inside me. And I was no longer took that passive uh, role with it. So it was an attitude shift in working with the metronome. Developing that idea one step further, if, if I could add, that when you enjoy a large orchestra, I think the life of an orchestral musician, it becomes, I found, because I've seen every rung on the ladder, and, and the difference between the uh, more regional orchestras to uh, the top orchestras that I've played with, you know, everyone likes to c complain about conductors. <laughs> we blame them for ensemble problems because they're an easy target. And certainly the, the lesser orchestras that, that I played in, there was more grumbling about it and more blame after a concert when something wasn't together. It was the conductor's fault. But I think as my career moved along, and I found that more advanced or more successful players um, tend to find a way of taking that responsibility. They take the responsibility themselves, and find, we find a way of playing together regardless of how clear or unclear. I mean, that's why I think some of the greatest conductors sometimes don't really necessarily have the best pair of hands. They may be great musical personalities, great musical minds, great inspiring creative people to work with, but if they're lucky enough to have risen to the ranks where they're leading the top orchestras in the world, those, those top orchestras, there's this unspoken <laughs> agreement that we're going to listen to each other and find a way. So what happens is you listen at every moment of who's got the, where's the engine? Where is it coming from? What group of in the orchestra here has got the fast moving notes? That is the subdivision at all times. So that if the big beat coming from the conductor isn't a metronomically or visually mechanically accurate, like a Swiss clock or something, the music is, is the engine and we're all tuned hopefully into listening to that flow and you play with it so uh, so even if a cue comes late if you listen to the 16th notes that lead to your entrance and you play it on time based on that that's more accurate than anything you can see visually seems like a, a more organic way of, of maintaining a connection with what's going on and reminds me actually what you were saying earlier with leading the metronome versus following the metronome. Right. It seems like it applies a little exactly. bit. Exactly. That's the thing. Uh, it's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. But people who follow conductors are always going to be disappointed, even with great conductors, because there's only so much visually, you know, everyone can have a slightly different interpretation of where is the bottom of the beat. And so instead of following, you've got to lead it based on what, what the flow of music is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's chamber music on a huge scale. That's really? what it is. There's one last thing that I wanted to, to just ask about that went by kind of quickly. And uh, you alluded earlier to, to the tendency for careful playing sometimes to happen. And my understanding, again, with brass players is that 
that's not as much of an option for brass players as it would be for a string player or mm. pianist or something mm. where you kind of get away with being tentative or a little bit timid. But, mm. but with brass players, from what I hear, you're either going to play a note or you're not. Right. And and I wonder, are there ways that you work on playing more courageously or less carefully? Like, how does one develop mm. that kind of trust in your own playing? Yeah, um, good point. Well, in in the near term, every day we're different as human beings, and, and some days, you know, you feel more outgoing and more confident, more bold, and you could look at it this way for a, a brass player, since we make so much noise and we have individual parts, that, you know, every time you come in, it's a little bit like stepping off a cliff, and with the trust that your parachute's going and whatever, uh, that it's not going to be a disaster. So the days you feel, you know, more confident are easy, but there, there are days, too, where you feel less so, and the near answer to that, uh, for me, is, well... If it's just my change in feeling today, I don't feel as bold. I feel a little more uptight. I really try to be find the inspiration in the music that's being performed and, and my colleagues. Because musical, I, I feel music is always your friend in terms of if you're in a rut, bad day or just a bad slump, you know, you're going through a rough patch for a few months, weeks, whatever it happens, you're love of music and the passion will see you through it so that if you can get on board of the expressiveness that you really do envision rather than feeling uptight about your own ability to pull that off you can take that leap of faith more easily and just get out of your own negative head uh, I, I would say how do you develop it in the first place you know a number one preparation because preparation does you know everyone's going to feel more confident the more you feel prepared about something. So preparation first, but secondly, really just say, I'm going to, I'm going to take a chance and just like giving yourself permission to fail and audition, but play in time. I would say, you know, take your chances in the rehearsals and find out uh, how much is too much where you've gone beyond. And so that when you get to the concert, you have a good sense of what works and what maybe didn't. The other thing that ties into what we were just talking about in rhythm is I have my own uh, feeling, as others do, um, this is not necessarily an original thought, but when you sort of discover it for yourself, it feels original in a way, that the importance of rhythm. Because, you know, as orchestral players, we sometimes have to play metronomically but very expressively, and we can't expect the whole orchestra to bend uh, rhythmically with, with our own whim. And that's the, the idea that subdivision is what propels the energy through a phrase. So that long notes have, there's a life within. So again, you know, you have that half note, duh. And most wind players, you know, it's the human condition. <laughs> you go on vacation, you play the note, duh, and you lose energy. But the idea that the phrase moves on, I'll give you a better example. We all know the famous horn solo, Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. Da, 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 dee, da. Da, 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 dee, da. You know, I hear that very sort of choppy rendition sometimes, but if you think about the long notes, the life within, and the subdivision is on a trajectory, you know, the upbeat, da, 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 into the downbeat. Well, what happens beyond that? Da, 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 dee, da, 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 da.
So if you take each of those subdivisions as little points, much like uh, the analogy I often use is uh, those connect the dot books when we have when we were little, you know, you're one through 97, you connect them and look, there's a fire truck. So these dots, if you plot out as, as a like graph on graph paper, what is the shape and the contour within a note and how it connects to the next note? That's something that if I plot out what I'm trying to do expressively in, in the practice room, they become like stepping stones, you know, up and down the hills of the phrase. And that, I can latch onto that and into a concert because that provides me with many good things. Good rhythm, like we were talking about. But I've attached the emotional content of the, of the phrase with each subdivision. I'm moving in the direction I want to. And it's controlled. It's like having your hands on the steering wheel at every moment. You know, if you want to take the, a little bit of a right-hand turn, how far? Is it a sharp turn? Is it a gradual turn? I can steer it back in the other direction. And with that comes the better technique we were talking about earlier. In order to connect dot one to dot two, your ear has to be moving through it instead of vertically at each moment. It goes through in a linear fashion. So it's better technique, uh, more expressive, perfect rhythm. And the last thing addresses the mental, which is if you're really concentrating on rhythm, it's what brings you into the zone, that moment of focused on the present tense only. It's like saying now, 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 and past and future disappear. That's where anxiety lives, but keeps you moving really just right in this moment. So hopefully in a performance, and I'm successful at focusing on that, and that's work you do in the practice room. You're only following the blueprint you've laid out, and it doesn't, you have to just trust it. And then fear, it might still be there on some level, but you've, you know, you know that it works, and you just have to reach for it, follow your own blueprint. It really is like sort of sculpting in sound, because when you do work on at every moment, the trajectory of where the next stepping stone, the next particle of, you know, the subdivision is going emotionally, intensity-wise. If you are focused on doing that, you really are in the moment. And you, you can, in the practice, you, you can, like a great sculptor, you can say, oh, I'll take a little bit off here. It's a little too much, or it's not enough. I've got to build this up to make really the shape that I want. It may seem highly analytical, but in reality, great art, it, sometimes it can be improvisatory and, and just live in the moment too, but the great works are worth spending the time to digest and making the most of those moments. It sounds like a more engaging way to be present in a performance and yeah. also more compelling purpose than trying not to miss. So. Well, yeah, the, I try not to go with the negative, try not mm-hmm. to miss, but it rather think about the positive, what's right. going to help you. I, I sing my song the way I think it should be sung, and that in order to do that successfully, I have to be engaged on an organic level of subdivision and living in the moment. And then, you know, I can spontaneously decide, oh, I'm going to, rather than the next step being downwards, I'm going to continue this trajectory of maybe intensifying if I want to. At least I'm in control because I've got my hands on that steering wheel every moment. And technically, as a horn player, I'm backing it up with that flow of air in that forward fashion. So accidents can still happen, but, you know, (laughs) at least it always, there's nothing worse than I think those performances where you feel like, just kind of, I'm not feeling really confident. I'm just going to try to bang out the notes. And, and even if you do, you know, you've kind of 
phoned it in that time. So it's, it's, it's always better to, to feel like you went for it and something went awry. You know, it, it is true. It may seem hard to accept as the performer, but people are, I think, more willing to accept that. But the more you, you go for it, then hopefully the more confidence you get and fewer mistakes happen. If you are intrigued by Eric's description of subdividing, I think you might enjoy listening to a couple other episodes where the same topic came up, specifically the episodes with horn player Julie Landsman and violinist Catherine Cho. I've put links to these in the show notes, as well as links to a couple more interviews that Eric has done. You can find these links at bulletproofmusician.com slash blog. Also, I wanted to give you a quick heads up that next weekend is the annual Beyond Practicing two-for-one event. In case you're new to the podcast, Beyond Practicing is the online home study version of the psychological skills courses that I teach at Juilliard. And the two-for-one event is where you receive a second bonus account at no additional cost when you sign up. And why would you need a second account? Well, whether it's going to the gym, playing tennis, or going vegan, Having a training buddy can not just be a lot of fun, but help a ton with the learning process too. And with a second bonus account that you can give to a friend or colleague, you and your training buddy can work through the course together, comparing notes, supporting and coaching each other as you progress through the various exercises and techniques. So if you've been wanting to perform more consistently at the upper edges of your ability, but haven't been sure exactly what adjustments to make to your practice and performance preparation in order to make that happen, Next weekend might be the ideal time to start learning the mental skills and practice techniques that can help you get there. To learn more about Beyond Practicing and the two-for-one offer, go to bulletproofmusician.com slash beyondpracticing.